So I want to know how many of you got a skeptic in your life that you sometimes wrestle with or have conversations with? Yes, definitely got a few of those. I imagine most of us got somebody. It's just whether you got the guts or not to carry on these conversations. Well, if that's the case, I think you're going to find this book very helpful if you choose to read it. And if not, I hope that you gain what we share throughout this summer worship series with one another. Um, I think to get this started, the best way to share it is to share a story that's found in this uh, book about a man named Danny. Danny was somebody who claimed to be an atheist. He said that he did not believe in the Bible, he didn't believe in organized religion, and he hated intolerant, judgmental Christians. Have you ever heard that before? Yes, most of us have, and probably seen that and bothered ourselves a little bit by it. But in spite of his avowed atheism, Martin Thielen, who happens to be a pastor, they became good friends. And so they throughout that next year, carried on several conversations about religion and faith and the Bible. And after a while, during that time, Danny said after one conversation, I think I've upgraded myself from an atheist to an agnostic. Made some progress there. Several months later, he finally said to Martin Thielen, I, I've had a revelation. I, I've decided I don't reject Christianity. What I reject is the intolerant presentation of Christianity by some of the people I've seen either on TV or in other places. A few weeks after that, Danny asked this question that is the title of the book, so what is the least I can believe and still be a Christian? And that's why Martin wrote this book, to try to answer that question and to offer a guide for what are the core beliefs, what are truly essential? Because there are many things that people do put out there that are not really essential. So that is the purpose. And, and if you read the book, you'll discover that you don't have to believe that Jews and Muslims are going to hell. You'll discover that you're not a heretic if you happen to believe in evolution in some form. You, won't, uh, you don't have to be submissive to your husband if you happen to be a woman. And some other ideas that you may have heard along the way. And then the second part of the book will get down to the essential core beliefs. And I think you'll find those chapters very helpful to you to, to sort out the weeds so that you can see what is essential to that, that relationship with that God who cares about you and wants the best for your life. And I think you'll find, as I said, this very helpful to talk to those skeptics that you may have in your life and discover that a lot of things they're rejecting are not really God himself, but the presentation of God. So for my part today in my message, Pastor Jill will be sharing her take in a little bit. I want to focus on a couple of images that are found in the scriptures that Pastor Jill read to us today. And I think they help set the tone for this series. They'll help you see what, what is truly uh, the purpose of this book. So the Matthew passage, this happens to come, these are words of Jesus, that comes in exchange with John's, the Baptist disciples. Now you remember John the Baptist? Remember, he's that ascetic who's out there. He's eating locusts and honey. He wears old skins. He lives in the desert. I wonder if he likes some of these recipes for cicadas that they're talking about, you know? <laughs> well, he fasted regularly. And he had gotten word that Jesus and the disciples do not. 
Jesus in other places gets in trouble with the Pharisees because they have the practice of fasting twice a week, every single week. And he knows that Jesus didn't do that. And so Jesus shares these words to answer both those objections. And he offers two short parables to explain why. He talks about what happens if you take a, a new piece of cloth and you sew it onto an old garment, and then when you wash it, that new cloth is going to shrink, and so it pulls away from the seams and leaves a hole. And then he talks about the purpose of new wine and new wineskins. Of course, back then, they had goatskins were used to carry wine. And if you had a new piece of goatskin, it would expand as the gases from that wine ferment and expand, and so it would be flexible with it. But if you take new wine and put an old wineskin that's already been stretched, then it's going to stretch even more and burst at the seams, and you lose that source of nourishment. Now, Jesus was not rejecting fasting. He was not rejecting what John the Baptist's disciples did or John the Baptist. He wasn't even rejecting the practices of the Pharisees. Because he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His point is that God is doing a new thing in Jesus' ministry on earth. And if you're so focused on your traditions, your practices, your methods, then you can't see what God is doing in your life right now or in the world. You're in serious trouble of missing what Jesus is bringing into the world. And Jesus compared his ministry at that point in time to a wedding feast. Now, a wedding feast in those days involved the whole village, the whole community. Everyone was invited. It was one of the most inclusive events you would ever experience. There was no invitation list. Everybody was included. It was a time for joy and celebration as well as inclusion. And instead, the Pharisees and even John's disciples were dwelling on restrictions and regulations. Fasting was associated with mourning and repentance and there is a time and place for that. But Jesus' point is, what God is doing right now, that is not the time. Can you see what God is doing right in front of your eyes? And then our second scripture from Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think that's one of the most beautiful scriptures in all of the Bible. I love it. If only we could live fully into that. Paul has experienced the work of the Holy Spirit. He, he's been taking that message of Christ, the power of the resurrection, throughout the Roman Empire, and it's spoken to all kinds of different ethnic populations, people who speak different languages. It spoke to rich and poor. And it's broken down all the barriers that people tend to put up. A ministry that was once controlled by this exclusive priesthood that only they could mediate between God and us now was a ministry of the educated and the uneducated, men and women. And yet, in spite of this beautiful passage, in spite of all the evidences that Paul talks about women who are at work in the ministry of the church, we find passages like 1 Corinthians 14.34 that tells women to be quiet during worship. 
Are you listening, Jill? <laughs> yeah, that's a good eye roll. I like that. Yeah. Or he tells women to submit to their husbands in five, Ephesians 5.24. He seems to condone slavery twice in Colossians 3.22 and Ephesians 6.5. So how do you reconcile those statements with this beautiful passage from Galatians 3.28? Well, I think what we see here is Paul's dilemma of the new wine and old wineskins. Paul's living in two worlds. He's captured this heavenly vision. He sees what God's dream is and what we should be striving for and aiming for. But he also lives in a world with realities. He's living in two worlds. He sees a world where there's no divisions, no barriers, and people are respected fully for who they are. When the church gathered in worship, all those barriers came down and worshiped men and women. were gathered together, not separately. Slaves, as well as their masters, in the same room, worshiping God together. When the church was at work, women and those slaves' work was valued just as much as anyone else. But Paul also lived in a world with its cultural understandings where it was okay for someone to own another human being. Paul was an imperfect human vessel that God worked through and cast that vision of living and implementing in that real world in that time had its difficulties. It was a patriarchal society where women were mere property. But at the same time, when you read the Bible, you see the seeds of this vision being lived out. Abolitionists often found inspiration in the scriptures that led the work that abolished the slavery. We see that seeds of inspiration where there's many examples of empowered women who are essential to the work of the gospel. We see the Bible calling upon the Israelites to bless the poor in spirit, to welcome the stranger. Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. All these things challenged them and us even today to make sure that our faith doesn't become rigid so that we can't see the new thing that God is doing. God continues to produce new wine that we have to that forces us to examine our beliefs and practices to make sure that we're able to contain the new wine that God reveals. This week I had a faith conversation that just happened to be somebody actually from Alberta, Canada. Saw some of the stuff we've been putting on Facebook and reached out, wanted to talk about something in their lives. And so we were carrying on this conversation about, about applying the Bible to our lives. And I was talking about descriptive truth and prescriptive truth. I was sharing how it's so important to understand the historical context of the Bible, understand the cultural understandings that lead to some of the statements that might not apply to us, just like I was sharing with Paul. And we call that descriptive truth. It was true for their time and place. But then you also got to do that hard work of trying to figure out what is the prescriptive truth? What is transferable to all generations, to all people? That's what we call prescriptive truth. And I stated that that's how I take the Bible seriously, but not always literally. And he kind of struggled with that statement. So he asked me a really good question. He said, so do you believe that we're smarter today than they were in biblical times? And I said, oh, no. <laughs> No, we're really good at getting it wrong in modern days. 
But I said, we do have the benefit of having all that is in the scriptures, as well as throughout history, even after that, of God continuing to work out faith with people in their lives. And so we get to build upon that foundation. It doesn't make us smarter, but it gives us an advantage and opportunity. And if we're faithful, if we're thoughtful, we can build upon that revelation. We have a God who continues to reveal. I love the United Church of Christ denomination promotion they had a few years back. It started with a comma and then said, God is still speaking. And that is certainly the case. Because if that's not the case, we would still be practicing polygamy, right? Women still not would be allowed to vote or to preach in church. People would still be allowed to hold slaves or treat people differently just because of the color of their skin. Because God is still speaking. God continues to produce new wine. It forces us to look at the wineskins that which we're carrying that new wine of God. Our God is not a static God, but actively working in our world and in each of our lives. God is not static, but he's working to bring us to a better understanding of who God is, who will always be a mystery. We'll never fully comprehend this God who's bigger than any of us. And that's why I think Martin Peter's book can be so helpful. He'll help us find permission to let go of those harmful beliefs, those examples of old wineskins, and help us focus on the things that matter most. May God bless us with his word. Many of you may know Adolf Hansen. Uh, Jerry and I are colleagues and friends with him, and he was my candidacy mentor throughout the ordination process. But Adolf has a heartbreaking story from his past that he shares, and that is that his daughter was killed when she was struck by a city bus in Indianapolis at age 31. He received a call from his wife while he was at work in Chicago and heard the news that she had been hit while crossing the street on her way home from work. And she was being kept alive by medical teams and machines until they could come and say goodbye to her. The trip from Chicago to Indianapolis for the rest of his family on a Friday evening took over five excruciating hours. The family gathered by her bedside on my friend's birthday and on the eve of Mother's Day and said goodbye to their beloved daughter as they prayed over her and cared for one another through tears and extreme sadness. Today, she would have been 54 years old. When Adolph returned to Chicago in his work at Garrett Evangelical Seminary after her funeral, he was asked to share the opening words of Psalm 23 in their chapel service. With tears in his eyes, he said, the Lord is still my shepherd. Those are the only words he could get out before he had to sit down. Through this family's heartbreaking pain, they were able to hold on to God as their shepherd and strength. And what a testament to the true nature of our loving God. Unfortunately, many of us have witnessed tragic situations where God gets blamed for things that God does not do. 
we may have heard well-meaning comments like, God needed another angel, or God took them, or God needed them more than we did, or it's just part of God's plan that we don't understand right now. So we begin our series on what's the least I can believe and still be a Christian by addressing the old notion that God is the cause of bad stuff that happens in our world and to the people that we know and love. This is one of those old-time religion ideas that people of faith should abandon and cast aside. One of the things that we should not have to believe. Because stuff happens every day. Horrible stuff. Two teenagers going to their senior prom weeks ago were killed in a car accident. Or our spouse receives a cancer diagnosis. Or we see stuff on the news in pictures and social media. We hear about it through spoken words from a friend or neighbor. Often this stuff happens to other people, but sometimes it happens in our own lives. It can happen gradually or suddenly, but either way, stuff happens to each of us. And when this stuff makes us feel a variety of emotions, such as joy or sadness or both, we seem to have little difficulty dealing with it. However, when that stuff is full of sadness or pain or anguish, we suffer on many levels, and it's hard to know what to think, how to act, or what to feel. And as people of faith, we oftentimes do not know where God is in the midst of pain and heartache. And in our darkest moments, we wonder if God is absent or in fact the cause of our suffering. Several years ago, after tornadoes and severe storms destroyed several communities around our state, one of the weather people on the news called the destruction an act of God, right? We've all heard that before. When people and property are destroyed by tornadoes or earthquakes or tsunamis, we are called, it's called an act of God. But why would we really want to believe that? An act of nature, yes, but an act of God? How can we worship and love and serve a God who inflicts cancer on children or wipes out teenagers in car accidents or destroys families in tornadoes or kills hundreds and thousands of people in a tsunami or an earthquake or the latest in a global pandemic? So the good news I hope you will hear today is that people of faith don't have to believe that and should not believe that. Jesus understood this and taught it. In the 13th chapter of Luke, there's a story of 18 laborers who were killed in Jerusalem in a construction accident. People assumed that this happened as a punishment for their sin. Jesus rejected that idea and responded to the tragedy by saying, those 18 who were killed when the tower fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. So God did not cause a tragedy back then, and God doesn't cause tragedies today. God is not the author of suffering. In fact, the goodness of God is such that God is in the business of redeeming suffering and bringing good out of the bad, even the worst of tragedies. 
I have struggled with this particular truth at various times throughout my faith life, particularly when I strive to understand the broken world in which we live, the violence that we see happening every day, and the disease and poverty-stricken countries around our globe, and even right here in our communities. My struggle with this really hit home for me as I came home from my trip to Auschwitz a few years ago. I had just spent eight days with the Holocaust survivor, Eva Kaur, hearing and seeing about the unthinkable suffering and death that occurred at Auschwitz. It would take some time for me to process it all. I remember my first Sunday back with my congregation was a youth Sunday. I had literally just gotten off the plane 12 hours before, and I sat in the pews as the youth selected the hymn, How Great Thou Art. I started to sing the beautiful, haunting, familiar words when all of a sudden my throat closed up, I got tears in my eyes, and I had to stop singing. Everything I had seen at Auschwitz the week before began to surface, and I asked myself, is God really good? Is the God we are singing about really great? How can we so live in a world where something like Auschwitz could exist? These questions haunted me for days, and every now and then, they still do. But after a while, I realized that these sometimes difficult statements are true. That God is good and good all the time. God is not the author of suffering, but the redeemer of it. The words of Paul in his letter to the Romans come to mind often. God works for good in everything with those who love God who are called according to God's purpose. I realized this through looking back on little signs of hope that existed even in Auschwitz and through the courageous stories of people like Eva Kaur, who was a survivor who faced the horrors of the camp year after year by taking people there to learn about it and understand it and learn about the past so that it will never happen again. I see signs of God's goodness in the little things, acts of kindness, the compassionate gestures of people, the excitement and love for God within the church and community and beyond, that God is good all the time, even when we might have to look a little harder and dig a little deeper to see and understand this truth. So God is not the cause of the storm, but does promise to be our anchor in the middle of it, not just sometimes, but all the time. Sometimes we know this and believe every word and experience it in full force. Other times we'll need to repeat it over and over so that we'll believe it for ourselves. But make no mistake that God's character will not fail us even when the world around us seems to fail. God remains good and good all the time, not as the author of suffering, but the redeemer of it. As a hospital chaplain one night, I was called to sit with a man whose wife had just died unexpectedly at the hospital. As I sat with him, he said to me in anger, I don't believe in a God who kills and takes people that we love away from us. All I could say was, well, I don't believe in that kind of God either. 
So may we be in the business of knowing and serving and sharing the love of God and the God that we know is love and grace and redemption to the world, doing away with that old-time religion that may tell us otherwise. Amen.